Philippians chapter 4. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 19. Uh, For the past four weeks that we have been in Philippians, we've been talking about verses 10 to 13 and some parallel passages regarding the subject of contentment and contentment and money. In the last two times, I've preached in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, and 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10, and 17 to 19 to, uh, in in essence, pave the way and prepare the soil, whatever analogy you want to use, for now coming to this portion of Philippians 4, verses 14 to 19, which is on the subject of giving, the subject of giving. So we'll be looking at verses 14 to 19, but to get the context, let me go back and read from verse 10. So follow along as I read Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10 through verse 19. Hear God's word. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want... For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Verse 14, Nevertheless... You have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek For the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's always good when you approach a passage of Scripture to simply ask the question, what is the subject of these verses? And so let's begin there by just asking now. We know what the subject of verses 10 to 13 were, contentment. Paul had learned how to be content in every circumstance. He knew the source of contentment was the strength that he had from Christ to live in any and every circumstance satisfied with what God was doing in his life. But now he turns to them and says they'd done well. Although he was content in his circumstances, they had done well to share with him. And so the the subject matter changes from his contentment to their giving. And so we find really the subject of giving or what we might say sharing according to the text. So the subject of these verses is not getting, but giving. Not getting money, but giving it away. 
not acquiring money, but departing from it through sharing what God has given to you. And so remember the last two weeks when I preached on contentment and money, I said it was kind of spade work and it was paving the way to get to these verses so that we might not hold tightly to our money, but be willing to give it away. If we love money, if we hope in money, then we'll be tight-fisted rather than open-handed with our money. We will be greedy, not giving. We will seek after money, not share it. We will covet money instead of being good stewards of it. But when we have a biblical understanding of money, its source, its purposes, its right usages, then we will be content and use what God has given us for His glory and for the good of others. So when we read this passage of Scripture, we see that the subject is found in these words. For example, in verse 14, You have done well to, here's the word, share with me in my affliction. So in verse 15, he says, you shared. And then in verse 15, he speaks of the matter of giving and receiving. In verses 16 and 17, Paul speaks of a gift sent to meet his needs. And so the subject of this passage, we could just say, is giving. It's about giving, sharing, using your possessions, your resources, your money, to share with those who have need and to support ministers of the gospel for the propagation and proclamation of the gospel. The church had shared with this particular minister of the gospel previously, and now they had done so again. So I want us to consider this passage really under these four broad headings. I'm going to kind of give you four broad headings, and we'll kind of move our way through those headings as we look at these verses and look at some parallel passages that would inform us about these things. And along the way, in these four broad headings, I'm going to make some statements that will give some meat to the bones, so to speak. Here are the the four general headings. First of all, giving and salvation. Giving and salvation. Secondly, giving and ministry. Giving and, you might say, gospel ministry. Thirdly, giving and worship. And then lastly, giving and God's provision. So we have giving and salvation, giving and ministry, giving and worship, giving and God's provision. Those are the four broad headings that we'll kind of think of it like a river bending here and there that will go into different sections that are, are called that, so to speak. And then again, I'll give you some statements that will help give us some markers to understand what's happening in this exchange between the Apostle Paul and the church at Philippi in this giving and receiving. So first consider giving and salvation. Giving and salvation. And here's the first statement. Salvation affects how we use our money and our possessions. These are very simple Statements, but very important. Salvation affects how we use our money and possessions. When we are saved by the grace of God, the whole person and the whole of one's life is changed. 
We are new creatures in Christ. And there is actually no part of our lives that are unaffected by that change, by that work of God in salvation. When a sinner is saved, you see the evidence of it. You see the fruit of salvation in a person's life. And one of those areas in which you see a change is in the area of money and possessions. Love for God, having been saved by the grace of God, now begins to affect how a person uses his money. In other words, when a sinner is saved, the pocketbook is affected. Salvation touches, we could say it this way, a person's wallet. It touches his bank account. That's impacted as well. You can see the effect of regeneration, being born again, in a number of ways. But one of the ways is you will see it in how a person uses his money. A person who's been saved by the grace of God wants to glorify God. And that means he wants to glorify God in the use of his money. He once used his money for sin. But now he wants to use it to the glory of God, the one who has saved him. And so he asks these kinds of questions. The the sinner saved by grace. How can I use my money for God's glory? How can I use my money for the building up of the body of Christ? And how can I use my money for the propagation and proclamation of the gospel? How can I share with those who are in need? These are the kinds of questions that a true believer begins to ask because, again, no part of our lives is unaffected by the gospel. And that includes our bank accounts, our money. And so regeneration or salvation changes many things. It changes our relationships. Now as a, a new believer, we relate to our parents differently and parents to children and We begin to see those relationships in light of the grace of God and in light of His Word. We have relationships that are renewed by regeneration and governed by the Word of God. We're changed in our pursuits, once pursuing the ways of the world. Now we're pursuing the things of God. Our loves are changed. Our desires are changed. We love ourselves. We love our money, we love our sin, and now we love God, and we love His glory, and we love Christ, and we love His church. But again, one of the things that has changed is how we see our money. Have you seen this in your own life? And can you see spiritual growth and sanctification in how you use your money? So one of the specific ways you begin to see how salvation affects the use of our money is what we want to use it for. We once used it for selfish and sinful purposes, but now we desire again to use it for good, for the glory of God and for the gospel. And this is what is evidenced in the church at Philippi. In verse 14, Paul says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know, also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. And so he's commending them here because he saw spiritual fruit from the very beginning 
in how they use their resources, their money, their possessions. And they had used it well. And so you'll notice in verse 15, he says that at the first preaching of the gospel, that is a reference to the first time they heard the gospel in Philippi. The Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys, he goes to Philippi, he preaches the gospel. We have that recorded in Acts 16. They believe a church is born. And he says, at the very beginning, at the first preaching of the gospel, he saw some fruit in now how they're using their money. They were zealous now to give to the Apostle Paul that he might be able to continue his travels to proclaim the gospel. This is what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. Now, when I read these verses, and not in the context, it might sound a little strange, because Paul is being somewhat sarcastic with the church at Corinth to make a point. And so he says this to them, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And he's rebuking them in various ways, and he puts it in terms that, again, he's being sarcastic. I robbed from other churches, taking wages from them. In other words, other churches supported me so that I might be among you to serve you. And he says, and when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And that's a reference to while he was in Corinth preaching the gospel, while they were tight-fisted, so to speak, and he didn't want to be a burden to them, the church in Macedonia, a region in which Philippi was located, they sent brethren to meet his need, to fully support him so that he could preach the gospel. And so the church of Philippi, from the beginning, evidenced salvation and bore the fruit of salvation in the use of their money. And what a testimony of the grace of God. Those who were saved by grace in Philippi wanted that gospel to be proclaimed, not just there, but beyond that city. They wanted more disciples to be made. And that's what Paul is referring to partly in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of what? Your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And one of the ways they participated, if you remember back in chapter 1, that, that word participated means koinonia, from which we get the word fellowship. They were fellowshipping in the gospel, participating in the proclamation of the gospel. From the very first day they believed, they wanted to then give of their money and resources for Paul to continue to preach the gospel. And this is the normal Christian life. When sinners are saved, they desire for the gospel to be proclaimed to others. They desire to participate in some way in that proclamation of the gospel. The kingdom of God becomes primary. The proclamation of the gospel, making disciples through the local church, becomes paramount. And the more you grow and read the scriptures, the more you understand this is the means by which God in this current age is propagating the gospel through his church, 
through ministers of the gospel, preachers of the gospel, pastors, missionaries, and they wanted to participate. So they were bearing fruit of salvation in every way. Paul is thankful for that. From the very first day they believed, they're participating in the proclamation of the gospel. Let me just ask you, because we need to apply this. We don't need to just say, oh, that was, that's good, we acknowledge that. But is that true of you? Has salvation so affected your money, how you use it, and the priorities of the use of your money and possessions, that if someone had knowledge of from the first day of your salvation until now, that they could look at your bank account, so to speak. They could look at your financial resources and how you use your money and say, boy, that's evidence of someone who is really zealous for the gospel. They, I see a change in how they use their money. Now, I was saved at age 17 and When I was saved, I was just in high school. I wasn't working, didn't have a job. I was getting money from my parents, but they didn't always know how I used it. So I didn't have a a bank account at the time. and, And I was trying to hide how I used it anyway. But my money was just used for sin, for alcohol, for drunkenness. But immediately, no pun intended, that dried up when I was saved. Maybe some of you were saved in your adult years. And you can say, yes, I was using my money and the resources that I had for sin. And and you could have seen it in my bank account. But then when God saved me, you could see how now there's a change. It's being used for lawful and holy purposes. And so has salvation affected your money, how you use it, and your priorities in how you use it? If not, then maybe money has more in a, hold, a hold on you than you think. Maybe the love of money and trust in money that we've been talking about the previous two sermons has more of a grip on your heart than you realize. And maybe that's one of the reasons why you're struggling so much with contentment. And so here in this passage, we see giving and salvation. We see that the church of Philippi, from the first day, was participating in gospel ministry. No, they weren't apostles. They weren't going and traveling to other places and preaching the gospel. But they are using their resources in concert with God's will in the uh, propagation and proclamation of the gospel. And so we see how... Salvation affects money and the use of money. Now let me make another statement. Salvation and money and just something very basic but it's important to understand. Money is to be used for good as God defines that. In verse 14... Paul says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And the word well here in the Greek in which it was written simply means good. You've done good. You've done well. This is commendable. This is a good usage of your financial resources. There there are others, but this is one of them. And so they had used their money for a good and commendable purpose. Remember, 
The problem is not money. Love of money, trust in money is the problem. Money is not evil in and of itself. It is to be used, but it's to be used for God's glory and for the good and holy purposes for which he has created it. So to understand how money and material possessions can be used for good, we really need to be reminded, and I'm just reminding you of some things in this, of the usual and biblical means by which money is to be obtained. Namely, through labor, through work, through industry. So we could say it this way, not only does salvation affect how we view money, but but then as we begin to understand Scripture and God's creation, not of those resources for His glory, but the obtaining of those resources, now salvation begins to affect how we think about labor, how we think about work and industry. That God created work and it is good and holy. We know that in the origin of labor and work. God created labor. When did he create it? Well, we read of that in Genesis 1 and 2. Work is a part of the creation. God creates Adam and Eve. He places them in a garden and he says, I want you to cultivate it. That was work. That was labor. They had to plan. They had to purpose. How do we do this? You don't need to think of before the fall in Genesis 3 that they just kind of threw seed out up in the air and it landed perfectly in right places and it just had an abundance. No, they had to plant it out. They had to till the soil and they had to plant it. And they had to work it. They had to water it. It used to be watered in a different way, maybe I should say. So he, in Genesis 2.15, he took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. That's labor. So understand, see, here's how salvation affects our understanding of labor and work. It's not I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. It's God created it. So let me use it for his glory. So the work is not a curse. But because of sin, now work is affected by the curse of sin. But work and labor is a good creation of God. And what are some of the purposes of labor? Well, in labor, we imitate God and we glorify God. God, and I'm using this in quotes, God worked when he created the world. Now, when God worked and rested, it wasn't like physical labor that was difficult and he needed a rest and a breather on day seven. That's not what it means. But he worked He labored, he he created the world and all that's in it in six days, and then he rested from that work of creation on the seventh day. He Sabbathed and therefore created this seven-day cycle. And so work in a day of rest, that seven-day cycle is a creation ordinance. And when we follow that, we imitate God, those made as those made in his image. And in this way, we glorify God. Now again, this is before the fall. But those two purposes still exist after the fall in Genesis 3, after sin enters the world. We still imitate God by our labor and rest, and we glorify God by our labor and our rest. But then the fall occurs. 
But we can still do our work to the glory of God. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now that was written to Christians who were in the circumstances of being slaves at the time. And he is saying to them that in a fallen world, you can still do your work for the Lord rather than for men. You can still glorify God even in that circumstance. And so here we see the sacredness of labor. And it's sacred still, even though we live in a sinful world. The fall doesn't negate the sacredness of labor. And so for the Christian now, one who's saved by grace, we understand the purposes of work. If someone were to ask you, if your child was to ask you or another Christian, well, what are the purposes of work? How would you answer that? Where would you go in Scripture to show them? I think you could summarize it with these three words. Provision, the provision of our own needs. Provide, to provide for the needs of others. And then propagation, the propagation of the gospel. So one of the purposes is the provision of our needs. Again, this is pre-fall and after-fall in Genesis 3. We want to provide for ourselves and for our families. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Here, when he says, if anyone does not provide for his own, he might mean there, those in the church. And then he says, especially for those in your own household. Or he might be saying extended family, but in particular, those immediate family members in your own household. And if you don't labor and work to provide for them, then you've denied the faith. You've repudiated God's commands. You've renounced God's commands and you've denied the faith, the content of the gospel. There's a type of practical apostasy here. In other words, the law of love has been denied. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and then love your neighbor as yourself. And how much more is that to be applied to loving your family members? And if you don't do that, if you don't work and labor to provide for your family members, then you practically said, I don't care what God's commands are. The, The command to love my family in this way, I throw it out. And he says, you're worse than an unbeliever. Because even unbelievers who have the law of God written on their hearts, even if they don't read the sacred scriptures, know that they should be providing for their own families. And so that's one of the purposes of labor. It's a good and holy purpose. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. And we understand that one of the means by which God provides is through productive labor that he blesses that we might provide for our families. And so that's good. That's holy. So one of the purposes is the provision of our own needs. But then there is... Another purpose, to provide for others who may have need. Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, 
labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with him who has need. So we don't labor in order to just hoard it for ourselves, but our eyes are to be open. We're to share with those who have need. And so as we, God blesses that labor and we have an abundance, then one of the purposes is, is there a brother or sister in Christ in need, a family member who is in need? And we share with them. But then there is the purpose of laboring for the propagation of the gospel, for the proclamation of the gospel. Now we're transitioning from giving and salvation to giving and the work of ministry. We labor for the purpose of giving to the work of ministry. And that is scriptural, that's biblical. And when we're saved, we saw it there in Philippians 4. The church of Philippi knew this. Maybe Paul had taught this to them. But they understood that they were to support the work of ministry and the proclamation of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 14. Paul writes, So also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Scripture acknowledges that the work of ministry is exactly that. It's work and it's ministry. It's working and laboring for Christ and there's a particular vocation and calling to that. And those who are called to that vocation can receive their living from that vocation. Now, it's not my intention to get into all the details of some of these passages, but let me just explain for a moment. First Timothy five seventeen and 18. It says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. And so what it means is elders, pastors who are ruling, governing, God has called them to lead the church. That's what that word rule means. And they, there's a governance to God's church. And as they do so well, they're to be considered worthy of double honor. What does double honor mean? Again, I can send you a link on a more detailed exposition I've done on this passage, but... But one type, the first honor, is honor and respect. But then the double honor, in the context, the word honor means financial support. In the context, he just talked about honoring widows by supporting them financially, those who are widows indeed, he says, who meet certain qualifications, who should be supported by the church. And so he's saying, all elders rule... And they're to do so well. It doesn't mean, oh, that those who do a good job at it should be paid. No, it, we're all to be those who lead the church and who do so through the ministry of the word and in various contexts. But he says then, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So the, the picture here is sometimes what you see, that there needs to be in the body maybe the setting aside of a pastor or pastors to, to particularly give attention to the public ministry of the word to particular 
discipleship and counseling of certain needs. And, and those who give, they need to be set apart to free up to do that. And they're worthy of financial remuneration so they can give time to that. And he quotes an Old Testament verse, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. I don't mind being called an ox. And the labor is worthy of his wages. From the Gospel of Luke, an Old Covenant and New Covenant verse, you might say. And so the work of ministry, making disciples, takes time and it requires resources. And so that's one of the reasons why we labor. And by the way, let me just say, pastors are not exempt from that. As I am remunerated to give full time to this, then I give to the work of ministry from what God has provided to me. So we give from the fruit of our labor for the furtherance of the gospel. And again, this comes out of, I've been saved by grace, and now I'm a part of the body. And the body requires resources, even financial resources, for this ministry to go forth. And therefore, I labor with that in mind, that I might give to that work. Let me just encourage you, when it comes to priorities in giving, for the making of disciples in the propagation of the gospel, that the first priority is to be your local church. Giving elsewhere, I didn't say only, but that's the priority, because giving elsewhere to the neglect of your own local church is like neglecting your own family's needs in order to provide for another family's needs. You don't neglect your own family. And just give to another. So the priority is your own local church. So here we see how now we should labor with that in mind. I labor, I work, and God blesses that. And I feed my family, and I share with those in need, and I give to the proclamation of the gospel through the local church. And so here we see how giving and ministry go together. Let me make another statement here. Giving is a, you might call it a spiritual investment. A spiritual investment. Now, there's been so much false teaching and false motives from false teachers and false prophets that I can only remember two times I've actually addressed this subject because it's such a touchy subject (laughs) and it's been so twisted by so many televangelists or Various people. Uh, When I preached 25 years ago on this passage, I touched on the subject. And then we did a, I guess we called them just discipleship groups way back when. We did a several week series on giving. Other than that, it's just when I come to it in scripture. And when I say something like this, giving is a spiritual investment. You might hear of those who are telling you, oh, sow to this and you'll reap this. And they twist the scriptures. But listen, it is a biblical truth that giving is a spiritual investment. But here is where I get this and how we are to view it. The language in Philippians 4 is that of accounting. Paul is using language here that would would be that of an investment, so to speak, of of bank accounts even, we might say today. So he he says in verse 15, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel to them, 
After I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. Deposits and debits is kind of the language. There it says giving and receiving, but there's some behind this language is some accounting type terms. And so they gave gifts. But look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. He's using language here of accounting. And the idea is that when we do this, it's not just a financial transaction. We have to see beyond that that we're talking about making spiritual transactions, so to speak, for spiritual purposes. When we give to the work of ministry, we invest in spiritual and eternal things, and we participate together in the work of ministry. Not all are pastors, not all are preachers, not all are missionaries. But through this common means of giving, we invest together, not in things that will perish, but in things that are eternal in the salvation of souls. So again, Paul says, I'm not seeking the gift itself in verse 17. I'm seeking the profit which increases to your account. And he's using the language that you have to have this this mindset that you're just not dropping an offering in that box out there, but you're investing into the kingdom of God. You're investing into the propagation of the gospel, the salvation of sinners, the disciple of believers and he says I'm seeking not my own profit but as we together fellowship in the gospel in this way he speaks of an increase to their account it's the idea here that you're using your resources to the glory of God and, and just like when you make investment so to speak into some sort of form that you believe will increase and you watch that account increase Or maybe it fluctuates and it goes down. It's unpredictable. But when you invest in these spiritual things, and it bears fruit and increases to your account in ways that do not ultimately fade or fluctuate. So in verse 18 he says, But I have received, and he's using the language of like a deposit. I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I'm amply supply, that is, I'm fully funded, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent. It's a spiritual investment. We, what I'm trying to get you to, to think about here is how we participate together in this way. You have your own maybe ways in which you're saving money for one day when there's a need that you have or for a retirement when you're no longer able to work. What we need to do is see how we're investing in various ways in eternal things. And how does that bear fruit? Last time we received new members, there were two young people who stood here and shared their testimony of salvation and were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There were a lot of people that invested in a lot of ways. Parents who proclaimed the gospel, taught the gospel to their children. But part of it is, And things that I've heard that have encouraged me is I heard the gospel of this church. You know how that's possible? Partly because we have participated together in in giving of money so that we can do this. This building, this place, 
the labor, when you pray for your pastors, and as I think, sometimes people say, I'm praying for your studies this week. Think about it. The way I'm able to do that is because you're participating in that gospel ministry through giving. So that I can give attention to that and stand in this place and proclaim these truths and the gospel. We participate together in this gospel ministry in a number of ways. One is by serving. We're to serve together using our spiritual gifts, different parts of the body, each part doing what God has called it to do, like a physical body so that it would be a healthy body growing spiritually. We participate together by praying. When you pray, you are participating in the proclamation of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says, you joining in helping us through your prayers. Paul says, when you pray for me, you're joining in helping us in this work of ministry. Do you serve? Do you pray? But then another way is through giving. So here's another statement. Giving is to be a partnership and fellowship in gospel ministry. So I want you to think about that. However you give, we live in a different age and we don't take up a quote-unquote offering during the service and you drop something in the box out there, you give electronically through your bank account and however it gets here. When you do that, consciously think we are participating together in gospel ministry. You know what that will help you do? Not just looking at the numbers and saying, oh, I could have used that for, for this over here. No, I'm using it for something of eternal value. And this is what God has designed as a part of how I am to use my money for his glory. So we see giving and salvation, giving and ministry, but then notice also giving and worship. Giving is not just a financial transaction. It's a spiritual transaction. Verse 18. But I have received everything in full, And have an abundance, I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Notice how he describes it. This gift that they gave to him in his need and in the propagation of the gospel. He calls it a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You know, that's that's old covenant language of worship. And he's borrowing that language from the Old Testament and the sacrifices that would be made And it would speak of the aroma of those sacrifices going to the nostrils of God. It says, oh, that is pleasing to me as these offer these in faith, believing me. And it's Godward. And it's it's a language of worship. And he is saying that, that giving is worship to God. When we labor and we view our money biblically and rightly and then we give and this manner, then it's pleasing to God. This is worship to God. This is one of the spiritual sacrifices we offer up to God. That's the language of Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect doing good and sharing. And that doing good and sharing in the context has to do with finances. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So think of this as a part of your worship. This is what God has designed. You worship Him with all that you are and everything that you have. 
There's not compartments of it. And part of that is God has blessed your labor. God has given you all your needs. And now as you portion out some of that to give to what should be the desire of your heart, the propagation, proclamation of the gospel, making disciples, your own soul included in that in the local church, you give it joyfully and you give it as worship to God. This is one of the the things I don't like about the electronic society we live in. Is that it can just be, oh, let's just do it. Again, it's a financial transaction. I give in that way. If you give in that way, purpose in your heart and your mind. And not only in that way, when you come and you give physically here, purpose in your mind to say, God, thank you for what you have supplied to me. You are God. Everything I have is yours You're providing my needs, and I desire this to be worshipped to you as you give. But it's a fearful thing to do that. I mean, I I really, I need this for this or for that, and I want to use it for for things that I think I need. I I know my needs are met, but I, I might need more. And you can see why I preached on what I preached on the last two times. No, we have to understand we're not hoping and trusting in that. One of the reasons why we don't use money to the glory of God as he has prescribed in Scripture as we should is out of fear and anxiety or hoping in and trusting in money rather than in God. And so Paul reminds them of this in verse 19. Here we see giving in God's provision. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You don't ever have to be fearful that somehow you're going to give and you're not going to have provision for your family. No, God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, again, We know there are times, and we read in Scripture, because of persecution or various circumstances, not any fault of the person, not because of laziness or sin. person loses his job, there's a need. So, well, God's not providing for me now. That's where then God says there are other believers to provide and to share with those who have need, and he supplies your needs in that way. But it's not to say you're never going to have any financial difficulty. When Angela and I were first married in 1988, I had one semester of college left. She taught here in the area, uh, fourth grade, right? At Indian Trail Elementary. And the salary was about $18,000. And we thought we were rich. And I don't say this to boast, but we started looking, how can we give it away? We weren't even thinking about, oh, we're going to seminary, we're going to need some money. We were just thinking, how can we give that away? So we actually found a means by which we could give to someone partly through the propagation of the gospel. I sat down in someone's living room. It was a family that had need because a father had been injured and was able to give to them and share the gospel with them. Then we went to seminary, and the income went down. (laughs) I remember we were walking in one time into our apartment, and we could check the mail there before we went in, and we were literally talking about how we were going to pay certain bills. And we opened it up and there was a gift that someone had given for our need. Didn't even know that we were in that circumstance. 
My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I still have somewhere up in my closet and one of these things when Catherine was, was born and her health problems and, and then her death, I have a list of, of people who just gave and I wrote it down in the dollar amounts and the thousands of dollars that were given. But let me, let me just share this with you. When we were in what I would call somewhat poverty at the time. There, I I've, can still show you the tax <laughs> returns. I've kept some of them from those early days just to remember of $15,000 income in a year. We gave to the ministry of the local church. We gave a portion of what, what God gave to us because we knew God would supply all our needs, and he has. And Paul is saying to them, in this spiritual transaction, don't forget, there's a rich heavenly father who owns cattle on a thousand hills. Don't be tight-fisted, trusting in your money and hoping in your money. Trust in God. And when you do, then you'll say, God, how do you want me to use the resources? Remember, this is a stewardship theology. It all belongs to God. So I'm just using it as he has commanded in his word. And God will provide your needs. And Paul is reminding them of this. He is a faithful God. So how should we give? That's a whole other sermon. Bountifully. It's not what do I have to give is how much can I give? 2 Corinthians 9, he who sows sparingly, verse 6, also will reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And he's talking about giving. Each one must do as he is purposed in his heart. You give bountifully, but you purpose. You think about it. You purpose. When, when you get paid, you, you, you think, how has God in his word, apportioned for me to give this. You give, excuse me, cheerfully. It goes on to say, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So do it cheerfully and joyfully. But do it trustingly. God will supply my needs. And do it thankfully. God, you've supplied everything. It all comes from you. And so I give thanks to you for your provision. And when we give in that way, again, it's worship to God. And God meets the needs of our families. And when there are needs, we share with those who have need. And we fellowship together in the proclamation of the gospel so that, listen, one day we will see how those financial, so to speak, investments really were spiritual investments. Right now, we don't see it as we should. We're, I was talking with someone the other day when they were looking at our sermon audio website, and you, they'll tell us where certain hits come from around the world, and it's like 11 countries last month where people are listening to sermons. One time, I got an email from someone in the Philippines who had listened to sermons, and you say, Oh, that must really encourage you. Listen, it should encourage you. 
This is what we're doing together to the glory of God and the propagation of the gospel to the salvation of souls and making disciples. And that's what Paul is saying. I've learned to be content in every circumstance, but you did well. This is a good thing you've done. Because God has designed money to be used for good and for His glory. Labor is good, it's for His glory. And when we use it in the biblical means that he has commanded, then we worship him and we give glory to him. And so I simply ask you again, what does your bank account, the use of your money, say about your soul and your relationship to God? Because everything should be to his glory. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, I thank you that there's nothing in our lives that does not somehow touch our relationship to you. Lord, that everything is related. There's the connection of that dot always. Every thought, every word, every desire, every love, every even holy hatred, every activity, even our labor, our money, Everything is to be in relationship to you for your glory and in accordance with your word. Father, may we not just go about living and sometimes forgetting how all this is to be to your glory. I pray that we would see the fruit of salvation, the evidence of salvation in every area of our lives. That the fact that Jesus is Lord would manifest itself even with the use of our money and possessions and resources. Father, I pray that we together here at Grace Fellowship Church might participate and fellowship together in the proclamation of the gospel through serving and praying and giving. And Lord, we pray that in these things it might be used to make disciples Father, the salvation of sinners, the spiritual maturity of your church, that we might grow to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.